0: This is the Packet Pushes podcast. Sometimes it's a place where 30 years of networking craft has been hidden behind the cupboard, and sometimes it's like a beacon of hope shining across the fjord on a rainy, cloudy, misty night and leading you to the false hope of a better life in data networking. Yes, this is a podcast that talks nerdy about data networking. It's not about where you've been, but where you are going. Once an old manager said to me, he said, Greg, don't tell me what you did for me yesterday. Tell me what you're going to do for me tomorrow. Today, we are joined by a team from Cisco Systems to talk about the FDDIO and the VPP project that was recently surfaced into a Linux foundation. It broached like a whale on the virtual switching community and suggested to us that there might be a better way out of producing a virtual switch that's fast, sleek, and well-groomed. Dave's been on the show a few times, so let's keep the introductions brief. Dave, please tell people a little bit about yourself.
1: Hey, this is Dave Ward. I'm the chief architect at Cisco.
0: And Dave Barrick is joining us today. Dave, what do you do? Hi, I'm Dave Barrick. Uh, I work on VPP code. Wow. So, the re- your fault, is it? Yeah, it actually <laughs> is. <laughs> and also with us today is Maciek Konstanovic.
2: Maciek. Uh, I work for Cisco and uh, with uh, Dave and Dave, and um, I uh, use the VPP code uh, by trying to uh, stretch it and uh, make it uh, work faster.
0: Okay, so great. So the virtual switch in the hypervisor has been a highly competitive space for a number of years. VMware's virtual switch has been, uh, you know, sort of dominating the space. Most people in the enterprise know the VMware virtual switch. More recently, open vSwitch has come along in the Linux um, kernel. And more recently, other initiatives like iovisor.org have been trying to get away from perceived limitations. We have did a show, Show 60, where we talked about how they're using BPF or Berkeley Packet Filters feature inside the Linux kernel. Other projects like Romana and Project Calico and very many other startups are all trying to use arcane methods to bypass the virtual switch even. So why all the fuss? Because the virtual switch is critical not only to connecting VMs to the network, but also because network functions virtualization means that our appliances, our firewalls, our load bales, our proxy servers, and all that type of stuff, are soon going to be virtual appliances running in KVM hypervisors on Linux. We need a virtual switch that is going to be more than just Ethernet in and Ethernet out. It's got to be able to do some of the features that our stuff has. Now, the discussion today is are we getting too complicated? Why do we want all this extra stuff? Is it craft or is it feature? So, over to you, Dave. Why would Cisco push this project into the into the limelight?
1: Hey, so thanks again, guys. And if it makes it easier, you can just call Machek Dave, too. Uh, You know, everybody at Cisco is named Dave, so you might as well just call us all Dave. And uh, I just want to warn you, uh, shoes are off. We're ready to go, so let me answer the question. Uh, We open-sourced VPP and created the uh, Fido project. Instead of calling it FD.io. it's easier if you just call it Fido. Um, And it's got a cool dog logo associated with it. But nonetheless... The reason why we open-sourced this simply was to move the industry forward. There actually was not a fully-featured virtual router, virtual switch with the features that are needed in the industry to create the NFV workflows, to work with hypervisors, and in particular, I think, Greg, what you left out was also in the container world, a fully-featured forwarding plan for a containerized and cloud-native world. And so we open sourced our Barrick, that's the other Dave, Dave Barrick, and 12 years of his work and his team's work on virtual switching and routing that is extremely high performance, extremely scalable, and very feature-rich with everything we need for L2, IPv4, IPv6, all the encapsulations known to mankind, plus a metric shitload of features. And it was really our goal, move the industry forward, because we will not get to where we want to be with respect to NFV, with containers and hypervisors, without Mm -hmm. a high-performance, high-scaling, feature-rich forwarding plane that's available right now.
3: Dave, this is not a new product, though. Uh, VPP's been around since 2002, from some of the reading I've been done. It's baked into certain Cisco features. I mean, is it part of my skepticism, but really this is all just altruism and we want to move the industry forward
1: The answer is yes it, it it has been and I'll let Dave describe the history in just a second it it actually is used in some Cisco products without a doubt and it's used as a piece of infrastructure uh, in in several of them. but in fact yes, the answer is there was not a governed open source project that actually had, you know, and we'll talk about the features in a second. All the features, the scaling, and performance that we expect as networking professionals, and there is no doubt if the industry moves forward on this trajectory towards uh, high performance, high scaling, high feature um, virtual switching and routing. There's no doubt it's it's going to be good for us, and it's going to be good for the for not only the operator, the developer, the designer, and the vendor community because there will be a bigger and better internet. And so, is it purely altruistic? No. In other words, there is great business to be made out of NFV uh, and out of uh, the cloud world and, and all the rest of it, but it was not go- it's not happening fast enough, as you guys are well aware. And to make it go faster, enabling the industry and a developer community to be on this trajectory is absolutely the goal.
3: So to get viable product to market, this is uh, a keystone to make it happen, VPP, because of the performance that it brings.
1: Exactly right. The performance, the features, and the scale. And, uh, and we'll let Machak talk about about uh, some of those pieces first. And I do want to you know make sure everybody's aware of some details are, rid- are available in a blog that Machak and I wrote about a month and a half ago now, maybe a little bit more, um, that goes into some of these details on what we're trying to accomplish and how VPP fits into it. But we'll talk about it a lot today.
3: Yeah, and uh, if you go to read that blog post, uh, I need a bigger helping of internet, please. I think that was the title of it. Strap in, folks. It's a long one. A lot of detail in there.
1: <laughs> you know, Cisco was really quite upset with me. They say, blogs are supposed to be two two paragraphs to two pages at most and i heard the two part but i ended up with 27 pages yeah <laughs> um, but there's there's a bunch of detail in there because a number of folks say similar to the intro Greg gave it's another virtual switch right what what's the big deal what is the difference in the architecture that you're presenting and i'd like to chat with you about a bit about that today as well on what the guts are and why the guts are important to be able to create a developer community around networking and also as we talked i think in a couple podcasts ago guy guys the how wrapped around the axle um, open standards are and their relationship to open source and can we help move that part of the industry forward as well by giving them a forwarding plane that they can easily drop in features as they're either working on standards or trying to get something out into the industry and i think vpp helps solve that problem as well
0: okay let's just focus a little bit longer on the strategy behind this okay so we have open vSwitch which is the open source project that you know came out of universities a number of years ago. Are you saying that it's not fast enough or not flexible enough? Is that an advantage behind Fido and VPP?
1: Well, there's a couple key things. One, it's got some scaling limitations and it's got scaling limitations really with respect to table size, both L2 and L3 table size. And also, that's on the performance side on the Feature side, it's really missing a lot of critical features that we've all come to know and love in the industry. And as it's currently the default virtual switch in OpenStack, we are limited in trying to use OVS and its feature set in building service function chains or in NFV workflows, as the case might be as well. And so we don't there's limitation there. And third, mm. it's a absolutely outstanding. Uh, know the guys well who built it, knew them when they were back in grad school and whatnot, and they're doing, doing very well now. But it's a great first implementation as it's a monolithic architecture, mm. and that really is counter to the way VPP is built, which is a directed graph architecture with feature nodes that can be independently loaded and unloaded regardless of the rest of the feature chain, which really means that the developer community needs to only focus on their individual feature versus on an entire monolithic code base. And you know it's it's been an ongoing conversation in the industry about monolithic code bases versus modular, modular code bases mm. and that's the architectural differentiation I'm trying to make with VPP that it's a modular code base
4: one of the things that uh, historically you know didn't really start off with a particular agenda to build in, you know any specific thing ended up thinking you know gee why is it that one gets better versus worse performance out of a you know out of a particular code base and the vectorization trick where you end up you know handling 100 packets basically in a loop, you know, gives you some really nice computational phase behaviors. That's one thing to say, given that you have a bunch of packets in your hands, you can start actually prefetching to cover dependent read latencies. That There are a number of coding tricks that make it slick. The other thing that I think we got, as Dave was alluding to, we got reasonably right is that the various pieces of the of the forwarding graph in some you know yeah they're an l2 and l3 path an mpls path or you name it but when you're working on a new piece of code on a new tunnel and cap you don't have to be globally aware of touching everything in the planet that you're really working in a nice little box with the expectation that at the end of the day because of the way the the infrastructure is constructed you'll actually get really good performance out of it and um, you know it's been pretty successful in you know in that regard to say uh, this is not of course, the first trip around the track. It's actually the third trip around the track. That mm-hmm. starting in 02, you know, colleagues and I did you know did one round of development. Um, the uh, the sort of the the, the highest uh, you know the highest part count, uh, Cisco product use was a set was a second complete rewrite from scratch, and we're now really on our third. So, uh, you know, hopefully, third time's the charm. That. Uh, we, we've managed to get pretty good traction with people now doing stuff in the, in the open community. And that, that's, it's really great to see because at some level, you want to get external traction. You know, the, uh, you know, the goal is to not try to do everything yourself anymore.
0: Let me ask a quick question. There's two other approaches. Open vSwitch is one. And the other approach is to use, uh, there's a project called IoVisor, which uses Barclay packet filters. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of virtual switches that use Linux bridges. Are they bad or are they just not optimal? You know, what's the difference?
1: So one thing, IoVisor, um, which is really a, I'm going to call it a shim, and and apologies to my IoVisor friends. We're also working in that community as well. Uh, And we can talk about us placing multiple bets and multiple uh, paths, both in the Linux kernel and otherwise, the extended Berkeley packet filter that iovisor um, enables uh, programming of is relatively new in the Linux kernel. And it's also a programming model that, that um, isn't complete yet. So I'm not necessarily saying it's bad, but it's in the Linux kernel. And the Linux mm-hmm. kernel isn't bad, but as we know right now, um, and you mentioned Linux bridging, and that's where I'm heading with this, and we'll do a quick comparison, sending everything um, in and out of the Linux kernel. Um, the Linux kernel doesn't have, the right now, doesn't have the fording. and yes, one good thing is that they're working on direct cut-through to the Linux kernel networking stack, but the issue right now is that the raw performance of, of Linux bridging in the kernel is at, the, at best at the hundreds of megabits per second, which just isn't going to satisfy our NFV dreams by any stretch of the imagination. We actually need tens, if not hundreds of gigs mm. available to us to create economically efficient and effective NFV workflows. And so the issue with extended Berkeley packet filter, it's just not done yet. And, mm-hmm. and even even then, the actual forwarding model of how it does classification and then does forwarding through it, it's yet to be determined how fast that's going to be.
0: Right. So they're just not fast enough because they haven't been optimized or finished yet. Whereas VPP has... Let me take the case, let me make these statements, and then you can knock me down or correct me. But by comparison, you're saying that the VPP, which is the algorithms inside of of FIDO, have had more than a decade worth of development. And as David Barrack said, he said he's been through them three times. This is his third time through optimizing that code. And that's what gives FDIO its inherent speed advantage, along with the fact that it runs in user space, not in kernel space. Now, there's some advantages to that as well. Maybe you want to speak to those points, Dave.
4: Yeah, I sure, can, I sure can speak to some of the advantages as a guy who writes code that uh, developing in user mode, depending on what you're doing, you can sit in GDB and say, oh, gee, that was wrong. Go rebuild an image and be right back where you were in 10, 15 seconds. Uh, we all know how much fun it is to reboot those big, big iron servers. And as a result, you know, just being able to work strictly in user mode, where not only do you have debugging tools, but also, uh, you know, even as humble a tool as Perf Top, uh, you can use to tune uh, prefetching strategies, one thing and another, which are just—it's kind of prohibited to do the level of tinkering that you need to get real performance when you're working down in the kernel. Even you know, even loadable kernel modules, you know, have their limitations in terms of, of how much you can do, if for no other reason than the the tooling that you can apply to them is not all that great.
1: So Dave, in addition, you know, one thing you learn when you build computers and and certainly a lot of routers and switches is that having the electronic state of the computer or the RP or RE or whatever you guys like to call it in the switch or router is dependent upon the state of the kernel. And so moving VPP into user space uh, means that and I actually um, I'm rather drunk on this Kool Aid. Is that keeping the forwarding plane in user space means that if there's a problem in the, in the forwarding plane, I'm not crashing the kernel and I'm not mm. uh, resetting the entire computer or entire device. Mm. You guys have a lot of experience with having to deal with fault tolerant situations and understand what happens when an RP fails or fails over. It's not pretty, and it's the same thing in a NFV world. And so being in user space, I think, is a an excellent attribute of fault tolerance in these particular cases.
0: Now, user space is and kernel space are two different types, just to back up for those people who are not aware. User space and kernel space is two different memory modes inside of the Linux kernel, or most operating systems kernel, but only my Linux is where we're talking here. Something that's in the kernel is restricted to the operating system. It's designed to be restricted so that security and integrity is maintained, and only the kernel of the operating system can run it. Something that's in user space doesn't necessarily, has a different memory space there, and the idea being is that because it doesn't exist in the kernel kernel it can be changed rebooted restarted without infecting the kernel in terms of uh, creating dependencies if you have to reboot the kernel obviously you have to reboot the computer so what dave's saying here is that because it's in user space i can do things with the virtual switch that i can't do if it's in the kernel you want to be in the kernel for performance but if you can get the performance in user space you're better in that is that a fair summary
1: very fair. Appreciate it.
4: Yeah, I'd even I'd even augment that point just slightly, which is to say that you can do things that are more more difficult and require more trips around the track to get right in user space, exactly because the cost of, of trying again is so much less than it is with kernel code.
2: And uh, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know whether this is the right time to talk about some uh, some numbers, but. Um, it does make the call uh, the, the code uh, much uh, much simpler and all, uh, simpler to to use and operate. It also makes the code much more deterministic and predictable. I remember um, the first time I uh, we met, uh, which was uh, over four years ago, uh, Dave Barak uh, with a BPP code. I was amazed that uh, where we actually looked at comparing it to routers, I could uh, count the cycles per packet. And it was at that time 100 to 150 cycles per packet, which um, at the, on the computers at that time, 2 gigahertz core and uh, 2 billion cycles uh, divided by 100 cycles, we were getting uh, 20 million packets per second, which was uh, lots of traffic out of a single core. Um, now it's, it's, it's and it was term- quite deterministic. Yeah, the determinism is
1: because the kernel also needs to handle all the interrupts that that come into the system, as well as all the system calls that need to come into the system, et cetera. And the determinism that Machik is mentioning is really based on the fact that the user space application, VPP, is doing nothing else and has to service nothing else. And that Mm -hmm. really adds to the determinism, particularly in the forwarding case, uh, delay and jitter. That's right.
3: Dave, uh, a question for you. You had mentioned vectorization uh, early on, so two questions about that. Well, one, could you explain that? I read up on it. I think I understand it, but it seems it's absolutely critical to the performance of VPP. And then, two, we were talking about kernel versus user space. Could you have done vectorization as designed uh, if you had to have done this in kernel, or does it only work in uh, in user space?
4: Well, the, the the vectorization techniques are really independent of the uh, you know the. Privilege level, you know the mode the mode the machine's running in that you could do them in the kernel, except to the extent that you'd find it extremely challenging to debug in less than the term of your natural life plus one <laughs> week uh, the right. whole thing. I mean, I, I you know I. <laughs> My own background is having started, um, you know, writing assembler code in 1968. And as a result, you know, you've seen kind of the, the difficulty curve going down and down. But vectorization, um, you know, is a fairly simple observation. Back in the 1980s, you know, in the days of the um, the, 70, the, the Cisco 7500, if anyone remembers that one other than me, um, the, the way the the forwarding plane would work is you'd take a single packet You know, as a result of getting an interrupt, run it through a long path, and eventually you do one of three things: you'd either throw the packet on the floor, you'd rewrite and transmit, or you'd punt it to the control plane. Well, the problem with that is, as the path length grows, as you turn on more features, what ends up happening is each successive uh, you know function you call ends up having to warm the ICACHE up, and when the 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 path length gets to a certain point, every trip. Uh, you know, every trip into a new function is an excuse to first suck the iCache, uh, uh, you know, suck, suck all of the code into the iCache. Then at the end of the day, go on to something else, lose the iCache from, from the thing you were just doing. What vectorization does is it says, look, let's pull as many packets as we can off of a device RX ring. And then run them through a dire- you know a directed graph of nodes where each node tends to say oh I have a hundred packets in hand let's do a for loop you know for i equals zero i less than 100 across all of them the first packet warms up the iCache cache and all the rest of them profit at that point what you've done is to give the computation a really nice phase where uh, you know you uh, you know you take your lumps uh, you know once for you know 100 packets. The observation there is that as you go through the graph, obviously not every packet follows the same trajectory. What you tend to get is, as a rough example, if you're doing IP, mostly IP four uh, transit switching, uh, the the uh, Ethernet input guy gets 100 packets. The IP four uh, IP four input, you know, which does a bunch of you know checks and making sure T- TTL hasn't expired and all that good stuff, that guy will probably get 97 to 100, where the other three might be arper. Applies. There might be something else, Uh, but at any rate, you do uh, uh, empirically. You get pretty good locality going through uh, a whole uh, a whole graph trajectory. In fact, it's probably utterly impossible with a decent vector size to actually get all of the packets to do. Something that degenerates to where we started in the 1980s with the 7500 of doing one packet at a time. The other thing that we can do in a, a world like VPP is you can you can transition between quotation finger citizenship mode, where you are taking interrupts, you're letting the kernel you know shoulder tap you and get going again. Maybe up to a three four hundred thousand packets a second can be run like that. What we do is we literally say when the vector size grows to a certain point, then we'll turn on polling in the device. Drivers. These days, we're based on the uh, Intel DPDK. Which picked up on the uh, vectorization technique, you know, kind of a, not a decade, but considerably after after we'd started with it. And the thing there is, good news: the poll mode drivers are really, really fast. The bad news is, if you turn on polling, you're killing a core completely. If what's really going on in the box at a certain moment only you know only requires 100,000, 200,000 packets a second, there's no sense completely eating a core for that task that you can actually get out of the way. An interesting thing you're probably thinking to yourself right now is, well, okay, um, what about the jitter and latency properties of the story? The story there is that uh, the dispatch algorithm actually is really stable which is to say if you're running at a prevailing vector size of 50 to 100 and something happens on the machine what'll end up happening is that more packets will pile up on the rx rings now if you think about the amortization effect of you know doing that you know for i across the entire vector warm up the i cache once and then all the other packets in the vector profit what ends up happening is it's kind of like an optimum you know a, an worker when times are slow it takes you know it takes more clocks uh, to do a, a particular packet but when, Times are, uh, you know, uh, w- when the, uh, you know, when the vector size increases, the computation runs a little bit faster, and the vector size will converge back to the equilibrium value. In fact, we see this in practice where something will happen on the machine, and you'll go from a vector size of fifty to seventy to eighty, and you'll hmm. see the vector size melt back right, melt right back to the uh, to the equilibrium value. It,
3: it just for our purposes here, the vector size is the number of packets being processed at any one. time. Time.
4: Yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. The number you get off the RX ring and run through the directed graph. Yeah. So
0: that means that you can have many packets in flight. So if you've got a server which is very large and you've got a hundred VMs, you can farm line rate to each of the. You know, you wouldn't get a hundred VMs active at a given instant, but you could theoretically farm at line rate to different queues for those each VM.
4: Uh, you can do reasonably reasonably well. I mean. Without wanting to get into making broad claims, where it's really a, a very detailed sport to configure exactly what you're doing, and Maciek will tell you, uh, I'm, I'm sure, when he gets around to it, of all of the fun of, of tuning something for really optimal performance. But yeah, to a first approximation, uh, a VPP-based vSwitch can eat a tremendous amount of traffic from a trunk and deal it out across a set of VMs, and that you know at high rate, and that's really uh, you know certainly one use case. I mean, also tell you about the use case, which is almost equivalent or, or bigger than a, a, a CRS8, actually, in terms of its uh, in terms of its ability. If you wanted to dedicate a whole server to being a big old you know big old core you know core router as of five ten years ago, uh, you know we've gotten to the point where we can do that now too.
1: So really, the point that Dave's making is that we believe VPP with its feature set. And a FIDO project can be both a VNF, a standalone forwarder with features in it, uh, performing a task in that workflow, and it can also be the virtual switch or virtual router that also connects together hypervisors as well as containers. Mm. And so it's got a dual role in this case. Our target is not to take out OVS necessarily. That's not really the target. The target is have a piece of infrastructure that's fully featured and have a VNF that can rock and roll. And, uh, Mm. Now that I've interrupted Machak, I'll let him speak in a second. Uh, if we were to put, and, I, and I've said this, uh, we wrote this in the blog, and I said this at a couple conferences you can see on YouTube, that four-socket computer, we're flinging uh, on that four-socket computer using 24 cores out of 64 cores total, 480 gigs. Mm. That's a you know, and that is bigger than a CRS eight back in two thousand four and five, which uh, which is what we built back in those days. That's a two RU computer that that's flinging more that can fling up to twelve line cards of the original CRS one in two thousand four. That's mm-hmm. not that bad.
0: That, that is quite good. I Just before we talk to Maciek about how he's getting um, the performance, I wanted to ask about hardware acceleration and DPDK. You're getting this performance, it sounds like, just in software. Does hardware acceleration make a difference to you, Dave, or does it... Um, does it just confuse the issue? Is there advantage, disadvantage?
4: Well, the hard- hardware acceleration is actually is actually a great topic to bring up. That architecturally, VPP is more than happy to take advantage of things like um, classification to take advantage of a crypto offload if you can do it. The idea being device driver layer uh, certainly knows how to cut through you know in the you know in the director graph that if you know for example you have an ip4 packet with a good checksum you just simply skip it forward bypassing the ether type decoder completely and you know when you say bypassing it it's yeah maybe saving 30 40 clocks a packet to just jump forward in the graph not checking the ip4 checksum if you already know it's good uh, it saves you another 10 clocks maybe and when you think about the clock cycle budget you know round numbers you want to do uh, 10 million packets per you know per second on one core um, if you've got a two gigahertz computer that gives you a 200 clock budget the device driver layer is going to chew most of most of a hundred clocks up so that gives you about a hundred clock uh, cycle budget per uh, per packet uh, mm-hmm. to do the rest of everything and we kind of get there as it turns out but it's 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 really a matter of you know So it's a lot of attention to detail, more than anything, and. Mm the, tr- the, the, the real thing that I'm proud of much more so than the absolute performance is the fact that you can get performance without producing just spaghetti code that nobody else can ever touch or augment that I claim, uh, you know, th- th- there's certain people who are never going to get how to go, uh, extend what's there and to build their own features. But there's a good set of people now that are, uh, you know, that we've engaged with in the community who are really getting it. And, mm. Uh, you know, that's really the thing that, that you know that uh, you know tickles me under the armpits is the fact that we, well, you know, <laughs> you're not how, the how only else,
0: person using this, and also it's in the open, and other people can join your project. Is it actually satisfying.
4: Yeah, it's you know it's very satisfying, and it also means that uh, you know when when Warden Company gets sick of me, it's not like I can never work on the stuff ever again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've, I just come from a conference saying that open source is the best thing for recruiting staff. And the best thing for staff to work on because it goes both ways. So I just – and uh, a lot of people didn't get that at the time. So just to wrap that up, DPDK is something that you can use to remove clock cycles from the processing. So you can use it, but you don't use it yet.
4: Well, we do we do absolutely we do absolutely use um, some of their offloads. The kinds of things that we're working on in the you know with the community are the DPDK guys have a particular kind of output scheduler, which sounds like it's a natural fit for VPP. Um, you can very easily spin up uh, additional threads to run things like your favorite output scheduling traffic manager. And the Intel guys are off working on that particular thing now. Other things that one can easily imagine are a graph node that says. Oh, I have in my hands an IPsec packet. I have over over there a piece of hardware that knows how to de- you know dis- uh, you know decrypt the thing. Please hand a vector of packets to the de- you know to the decryption engine. When the mm-hmm. packets come back, it's really interesting. It's really easy to reintroduce them to the graph uh, in a way as if they were never encrypted in the first place. So uh, you do you do have a very you know very easy mechanisms for introducing uh, the hardware accelerator of your choice. It's not terribly different to what you would do in a feature-rich NPU that has a bunch of hardware offloads. It's kind of the same techniques. You, okay, you yeah. know,
0: So there's a lot of NICs out there that are NPUs. <coughs> processor units, they have dedicated silicon on the card yep. that can do highly accelerated network forwarding because they offload yep. that from the CPU. They, remove again, remove the clock cycles from the thing.
2: I think one of the best examples for that is, as uh, Barak already mentioned, is the crypto. Current crypto code in VPP is actually using the uh, Intel AES and instruction set exactly the same instruction set that can run on the CPUs and also on the on the uh, crypto hardware so for the CPU intensive or compute intensive uh, pieces we can uh, you know if, if there are crypto cards in the in the computer and uh, we can run faster uh, if there are no cards then we will run a bit slower uh, but the feature set is the same and it shows the power yeah. of uh, modularity and simplicity of, uh,
3: of VPP. Now, Dave, you've mentioned uh, the graph uh, several times and, mm-hmm. and uh, vectors moving through the graph. So th- correct my understanding here, but as I get this, the graph is a collection of nodes, and a node is some function that's going to be performed on a vector, a vector being a group of packets. So we've got uh, a vector comes in, it moves into the graph, it hits a node, a bunch of processing is done, it moves on to the next node until it works its way through the entirety of the graph. Uh, is that a correct understanding?
4: It's it's really quite close. Let me let me do uh, let me do one um, piece of tap dancing to try and make that notion even a little bit more precise. Nodes really end up processing vectors of packets that are intended for them. Think of a, think of a of a node is almost like a dealer at a card game where uh, you know each of the you know each card is a packet, and you're you're dealing most of the most of the cards into one pile that goes uh, further into the graph in one direction, but uh, but. there's no there's nothing about it that says an entire vector moves uh you know moves verbatim through the graph what you end up doing is subdividing uh vectors into uh sometimes somewhat smaller vectors now again for you know a case where you don't have a lot of diversity in what i'd call the trajectory uh in the graph i mean if you think of the ethernet uh the ethernet decode node um in a case where you're doing a mix of ip4 and ip6 traffic well the next node uh for IP4 traffic would would turn out to be uh, IP4 input. The next node for IP6 traffic is IP6 input. And at that point, you know, if you're doing 50%, you will have cut the original vector in half. A lot of times it doesn't work that way, but that's what really goes on is think of a graph node as like a dealer at a poker table where oddly enough, with the exception of the device drivers, he was also a player at at, at a particular table. Because depending
3: on what's in that vector, you have to go to different nodes in the graph mm-hmm. for, for pr- appropriate processing.
4: Yeah, well, packet by packet, you certainly you certainly do send the packets to different nodes depending mm-hmm. on what they need, yeah.
1: The reason why uh, this discussion of graphs is, is really quite key because I've uh, read a few folks and, and had a few conversations that folks are confused on the difference between a, a graph and a pipeline. And most folks think of, you know, forwarding A6 and NPUs of having a pipeline where a packet goes in and it's processed at each stage. And if a packet doesn't need to be processed, it's got to skip that stage, but t- take clock cycles to skip that stage. Dave's built a different architecture. Again, it's a directed graph of features that are necessary for that packet processing. And if a packet, in Dave's example, Ethernet to V4 or V6 in a pipeline, it would hit, let's say, Ethernet. DCAP, then the V4 node, oh, it's a V6 packet. I don't need to do that. I just wasted those cycles. I'm going to go on to V6. What mm-hmm. Dave has is the ability to immediately create branchiness in the graph such that the only packet treatments that a packet will receive is along that graph vector that it's been, uh, it needs that treatment on. And so a directed graph in a vector, in using the vector treatment that David's mentioned, is not a pipeline architecture. It's a directed graph architecture. And very precise for the packet treatments that need to happen for any individual packet.
3: It also means you've got to determine what that packet is, what that frame is, before it actually starts flowing through the graph. How how are you determining that?
4: Well, it's, there's not there's not really very much to it. You know, at the device driver level, if you get some pre-classification out of the hardware, well, that tells you, oh, it's IP four, and it and it needs or doesn't need a checksum check done on it. It's IP six. That's one sort of branchiness. The other is, okay, I have a I have a a MAC encapsulated packet. Go look at the ether type and mm-hmm. you know one you know again it's desirable to skip that if you can get the hardware to help you but mm-hmm. there's no requirement to do it
3: mm. now is it fair to say that the graph nodes also uh, are related to the modular uh, the modularity that vpp has
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, although no two graph nodes are exactly alike, otherwise why would you have two? Uh, It does turn out that they are uh, largely independent of anything, uh, any knowledge of each other. That's not to say that, uh, for example, in the IP path, uh, earlier stages in the IP path, I, you know, for example, IP4 lookup is going to pass hints to IP4 rewrite. For example, okay, I looked this up in the try in the uh, bounded index extensible hash in the case of v6 table, and I came up with it with an adjacency index, and that adjacency tells me the next place I go with this is to rewrite the packet. Well, it'll turn out that you you scribble down in buffer metadata a little note that says, oh yeah, and when the rewriter wants to know now what uh, what adjacency am I supposed to use for the rewrite for this guy? Uh, it knows it knows how to find it instantaneously. So, in addition to uh, just the trajectory through the graph, there's a little bit of. Uh, context past, past kind of with local significance between subgraph arcs um, it's a trick that's used commonly in NPU programming as well where you end up with a pa- a per packet context that uh, various stages will scribble notes into and we have exactly the same thing I mean I've done some of that kind of work and you know although the technique requires some level of discipline uh, it's actually you know it's very effective at saying I don't have to re- uh you know reacquire things I knew a minute ago from first principles.
3: Now, we've also talked about DPDK. I want to understand how FDIO, or sorry, FIDO and DPDK are related. Is it that FIDO is using some elements of DPDK to do what it does, or is there a place where FIDO ends and DPDK begins as the packet is flowing through the system?
4: There's really a pretty, at the moment, there's a really pretty distinct boundary that DPDK is a, is a great source of very high performance drivers, and really at the um, driver to network stack uh, interface in both directions. We have a pretty crisp uh, line of demarcation. In fact, VPP can be built specifically to run over AF packet interfaces completely without the DPDK, so that if one wants in a container workload to have something that works with AF packet, you know, you can build a version of, of VPP that gives you the whole net stack, comma, but none of the DPDK drivers, and in particular, none of the poll mode uh, driver behaviors. So, yeah, there's a pretty crisp. line line of demarcation. What we're trying to do as a community is to uh, I wouldn't say blur the line there, but to take m- more advantage of things that the DPDK uh, community bring, you know, brings to the table, cross scheduler, for example, uh, stuff that we don't have, uh, particularly in VPP, at the at the low level, um, you know, bit bang, you know low level bit banging functions. Uh, that there, that community is a really good source of, of highly performant, excellently coded, uh, low level routines and you know, we, we continue to try to leverage uh, what's coming out of the DPDK community. I mean, naturally, there's a bit of uh, the two communities, you know, have such an affinity for each other that at some point, uh, you know, you'd hope there'd be a, a you know, a, a Vulcan mind meld at the, at the program level. But I'll let Ward get into that. I'm not a politician.
1: <laughs> uh, so we're going to also leave that topic for a second. But Dave, you think you forgot to mention that VPP also supports the S- DPDK feature set as well, which is the storage uh, I.O. features of that driver infrastructure. And we actually can we take advantage of that in other projects that we do where VPP as a generic piece of I.O. infrastructure is not just related to networking, although that's what we're talking about today. We've actually built storage processing nodes and, and storage I.O. processing into the VPP infrastructure. Rewinding the conversation just for a second... Um, you asked whether or not we can take advantage of other hardware accelerators. As you know, there's been a movement in the industry to take advantage of compute plus FPGA. And mm-hmm. so we're what we're working on now is having the exact same coding architecture and development uh, experience that Dave already mentioned, but also make it not just the... Features that are built into a CPU or into an NPu that was mentioned, but also into an offloaded FPGA that can do um, some packet treatment, return the packet, and get right back into VPP as a, as a graph node. It just happens to be a hardware graph node instead of a software graph node. Mm. And and we can talk about uh, how well we're doing with performance in those uh, in the future when we're when we're done doing that work. That that's uh, this summer. Oh,
0: you've got to wait for those chips to come to market. They're still a, a ways out.
1: Yeah, in particular, the, unfortunately, they're still frequently attached over PCIe. And mm. what and maybe we could turn the conversation for Machik to talk about some of the interesting performance tuning because what we run into is really a limitation on how PCIe is being used and its fundamental limitation as, as a bus. This is PCI Gen 3 and we're hoping for a Gen 4. And then just on NIC limitations. And mm. And where I'm headed with this is that as we take a look at other projects and trying to build let's say a IO optimized computer for NFV which mm-hmm. is not an enterprise or IT based you know rack space or blade computer at this particular point it's one that's optimized for IO and not for mm-hmm. memory or storage you actually we actually need as an industry to build a different computer And um, that's what Matric's been spending a ton of time on. And the limitation (laughs) and why...
0: So so I'm joking a little bit here. You know, we need custom hardware to do networking because networking's special. Is that what you're trying to say?
1: No, 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 no. What I'm trying to say is that we need a computer, and this is also what you see out of the Mm. TIP program in in OCP, that if we're going to build, let's say, a service provider computer for NFV and make it Mm. cost-effective and efficient, it comes down to how much I.O. you can put through that computer. And
0: so, you're saying that that x86 architecture needs to focus on moving data on and off the bus, which is not historically what x86 has been designed to do. The PCIe bus is not actually all that
1: fast. And it it's also how you end up building these computers and whether or yeah. not QPI is going to be an interface between chips or otherwise. And yes. how your NIC is wired up to your, to your CPUs mm. uh, becomes quite, quite critical. And this is at the forefront of compute design and what the TIP program in OCP really is focusing on and what they've talked about uh, at their launch.
0: But is Intel going to produce, like at the moment, they're producing CPUs with FPGAs that focus on cloud provider requests. So the FANG group, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, they're looking for CPUs that have FPGAs because they can write their code to take advantage of them. Would Intel build a, a type of motherboard architecture or CPU architecture with the supporting chipsets that would be networking centric. Is the carrier service provider market actually big enough for that to happen? I believe so. Mm. Because that's the predication is that there is customers to buy IO-optimized CPUs and motherboards.
1: Yeah, for example, Uh, in an IO-optimized computer, just keeping this really simple, you don't need spare PCI slots to put in other cards. mm. You don't need USBs. You don't need to be able to fit... Uh, terabytes of RAM. You want to use that that board space to get more I/O off of the off of those off those compute. Uh, sorry, off those CPUs, mm. and also um, you want to optimize cost in a different direction. In one case, not for flexibility, but in case for, in this case for performance. Yes. And I think I think where we're going to see a lot of these computers. Of course, is potentially in edge, well, any, anywhere you see NFV, but particularly in the in that distributed potentially cord architectures or in uh, cloud yeah. DVR architectures, CDN architectures, GI land off of mobile gateways, um, virtual CMTSs, etc., etc., etc. All of those places are the perfect place for an IO optimized. Yeah, computer.
0: it won't be enterprise IT that will yeah, drive that market. Exactly. It'll be carriers and service providers that will. Number
3: of huge customers buying lots and lots of these things to do what they need to do, but but right, I agree, Greg. I don't see a lot of enterprise folks grabbing onto this necessarily.
0: Not a bad thing, but it'll dribble down to the enterprise over time once the technology proves out.
1: Yeah, in particular, I think when um, when we actually get to the virtual branch situation, as well as hey, uh, and and we see this all. You know, see this actually quite a bit in the iWAN or broadband WAN cases where, hey, look, I want a CPE that potentially is virtualized, and I want all those services services that I now expect in my branch from firewalls to load balancer to WASs to whatevers to all be virtualized. Those are just NFV cases in enterprise situation where the computer they're going to want to make this cost-effective and efficient is an IO-optimized computer.
0: Mm. I don't dispute that. I'm just questioning the mechanics, the business mechanics that would see that being produced. So the logic is good, but whether the business logic comes up at the same value,
1: uh, I agree. It's uh, and again, what uh, I, I love how we're talking for much and actually not letting him talk. It's it's really,
2: <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> really, I'm being I'm being too polite to to cut you off, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, but just 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 on IO piece, I mean, all of the testing we've done and the benchmarking, um, all of the numbers we are we are getting for a box full computers, whether they are two socket or four socket computers, based on modern Xeon, um, Intel, uh, Haswell uh, uh, CPUs, and they're all I.O. bound. Uh, so there is definitely a more capacity in those computers to be able to deliver on the services that, uh, that, uh, that we just discussed, that Dave mentioned, virtual branch, NFV, and any type of networking processing. And uh, it's all I.O. bound, PCI. So the reason why we couldn't get more than, let's say, 480
1: gigs out of a four-socket computer wasn't that we didn't have enough cores, it's that we didn't have enough I.O. We didn't, so it sounds kind of cool that, hey, we only use 24 cores for out of 64 for 480 gigs. Uh, we would have loved to use more. I mean, Majek, Dave, and I, our goal right now is can we get a terabit out of a 2RU computer? And and how can we get there? And right now, we just need a different I.O. architecture to be able to do that. If we're um, mm-hmm. at half a terabit, really not too bad of it at 2RU, but if we can hit break that terabit boundary... Mm-hmm. Um, that things, I, I actually, I think uh, that that's quite a statement in the industry to be able to, to flip that over.
3: So, so Dave, let me, who needs that much capacity out of 2RU though? I mean, it's a really a small number of folks that could conceive of the data processing needs to push that much data out the back of the box.
1: So that's true. I can't. I don't see this actually being a terabit box uh, necessarily. Depending on the VNF, it, it's all good. I'm sure there's cases where it might be the might be the case. But let's get back to the to the point that was earlier, which was, let's say we're talking about a containerized world instead of a hypervisor world, where I actually do have a hundred containers, and I'm only using eight or sixteen cores, and I'm and I'm and I'm leaving all of the other cores available for those applications, and I'm able to get hundreds of gigs out of it. Remember, the cost curve that we have is going to be the application processing, the IO processing, in other words. We are now at a cost effective point where the virtual switch router is actually able to uh, keep up with all of the demands of the applications and hypervisors. And you say, well, where mm. the hell is that? So the, what we showed at NAB, which is a conference down in Vegas of the National Association of Broadcasters, is when we took an uncompressed 4K bit stream of video and ran that through a containerized workload, again, we were... 25% of the frame rate of the native video because of I/O limitations using uh, the Linux kernel, which is used in today's containerized world. Everything goes through the host stack. That's that's the that's the kernel I/O limitation in those types of environments, which again are I/O intensive. We're talking about uncompressed 4K video, which is basically a 14 gig stream rounding, which. In general networking terms 14 gigs what me worry what, what you know what's the problem with that but when you actually have a multi container workflow that needs to be able to, to pass all that traffic through it is exactly the type of processing uh, where you need VPP and that's really the target for VPP I refuse to be open stacked again and what I mean by that <laughs> what I mean by that is not having the networking, smarts, capabilities, features, performance, and scaling that is in the OpenStack world and the hypervisor world be brought into the container world. And just quickly summarizing, all the application containers are so tiny and boot so fast and work so well because they use all the OS services of the host container, which is the Linux kernel. Mm. That includes all networking. What Dave Motrick and I are working on is getting VPP in a containerized world, getting in user space, having all the features available, getting in an extremely high performance, and getting ahead of this curve as networking in, in the containerized world is actually behind where OpenStack is today, and we don't want to get caught in this trap that we were before of uh, not enough networking and not enough networking smarts available in those open source stacks.
2: Uh, video is, is clearly one application, but uh, there are some other um, much more common, uh, well, all, all equally common applications for this high I.O. bandwidth, and that's uh, replacing routers. Uh, yeah. Services, VPN, uh, cloud-based uh, network services, whether these are uh, security, firewalls, uh, VPNs, and such. Routing traffic, uh, well, you take a few 10 meg or 100 mac circuits that you route between, and your you know, number of gigs and 10 gigs uh, multiply. So imagine you can host, instead of two customers per computer, uh, you can host uh, 10 customers or, or, or um, uh, companies or, or, or 20 uh, with uh, tens or hundreds of sites. So that quickly um, becomes an attractive techno- from the techno-economic perspective. And, um, and uh, why it is better than or different um, or more efficient than with routers? Well... You can um, you can like you do in virtualization. You can instantiate those services very quickly. You can upgrade them and uh, modify them, and recover recover them like you do in virtualized world in the cloud uh, instantaneously. And uh, quite often, if you get things right from orchestration perspective, um, you may give this power to the in the hands of the user with the you know, real time uh, UI that drives the actual uh, self service and self VPN management and control. And they're actually very efficient. Um, and networking functions on the computers.
1: Yeah. So what Machek's really saying, and, and I'm a firm believer in this, is that the network function virtualization is going to follow the same cost optimization history that we saw with physical devices. To be able to get uh, greater economic value, and in this case, break even economic value in, in in a V, it's going to require higher higher I/O density. It's going to follow the exact same trajectory of history that we saw in the past, or otherwise, you're going to have giant data centers full of computers that really aren't processing very many packets, as Machik said, and it's not going to be cost effective. You, ha- you know, the movie is going to be the same. There must be higher density and higher I/O and higher performance of networking to make NFV cost effective.
3: I can really play devil's advocate here and say, oh. okay, if we can crank this much box or this many packets through a, an X eighty six box. Uh, we could replace physical routers, you know, the huge big iron boxes that we've been racking up that take uh, 42U and uh, can do monstrous amounts of forwarding. In theory, and that sort of uh, RU with VPP and the right software, we could do that now for much lower cost and without custom ASICs. Is that fair to say?
1: In some situations, in some, as Machik said earlier, in some situations, a virtual router can satisfy a need. And in particular, when you have the density and you're creating you know, a virtual packet core for mobility or potentially maybe even a virtual CMTS, if you've built a CCAP architecture and removed out the PHY and MAC into another device, it could be exactly what we want to be able to do by having VNF sitting on two R computers way in remote distributed cases. But when you have a huge... Interchange with lots of fibers and lots of links going in lots of different directions, you have a combination of different densities, features, and performance that need to happen. And there is no doubt if uh, we tried to build a BNG or broadband network gateway or IP subscriber termination system with all the state that needs to be created uh, as a subscriber uh, is added onto the network, VPP will not perform at the same rate, and why custom silicon is is most frequently used in a lot of those extreme iron cases. Hmm.
3: Where do I put in FDIO if I'm an OVS or some other sort of uh, virtual switch user today?
1: In fact, wherever there's a virtual switcher router today is where we're trying to target The Fido project, and so we're building ML2 drivers so it can fit into OpenStack. We're we're, uh, bringing it into uh, the container tooling environment, and we're container agnostic with Docker, Mesos, Kube, etc. And we're trying to get user space virtual forwarding, as already mentioned, um, in all these environments. But it does require because it's not uh, day one like some like other virtual switches and routers. That uh, we can bring it into these different environments, which means the tooling has to be supported. Because it's a, it's
3: a data plane tool. It's not. Does that mean it's not a control plane tool? I mean, it needs something's got to feed packets into this thing.
1: Exactly right. This is a low level forwarder only. It is not a control plane. But there's a project associated with VPP called Honeycomb, which is pounds on Dave Barracks binary APIs on top and speaks all the different SDN languages on top. NetConf Yang, OpenFlow, it can even speak BGP, it's going to speak path computation element, it speaks Google RPC, and sitting on top of that can be everything from an SDN controller, OpenFlow, it can be an ML2 driver, like in OpenStack, it can be... A router control plane or a routing control plane, a bunch of routing protocols that are pounding in fibs as well and, and and other features. And it can be a combination of those, meaning you could be feeding ACLs with a controller and routes with a BGP instance. It is only a bit-banging, packet-flinging, forwarding plane. And so it's control plane agnostic. And we've proven in our own products it can be control plane agnostic and then proven that with a number of partners as well. Now, the the interesting part of that is It's not tied to any specific control plane, and it is not tied to any specific SDN protocol. It is SDN protocol agnostic. It is not optimized for any one individual uh, SDN protocol or way that it's fed whatsoever. There's, of course, rules in the order in which stuff is programmed, just like everything else, every other forwarding plane. Really tough to uh, fling packets out if there's not a Gazinta interface coming in, but nonetheless... um, I understand the point I'm trying to make, which is that it is uh, protocol agnostic and control plane and management plane mm. agnostic.
0: Yeah, so right. if VPP is the forwarding plane, VPP slash FIDO is the forwarding plane, you now have to strap some sort of control engine over the top that makes you happy. Correct. It's not, you're not specifying or restricting that. And because it's open source and it's in a Linux foundation and the open license is there, anybody can go and pick up the code and start folding a control plane on top. So if you want to make it look like OVSDB, then for what? Because you need back. To do that, then you can do that, or you can start to develop new NetConf and yang models to forward and make it look like BGP. Sure, knock yourself well, out.
1: Well, actually, Greg, it comes with it's being it's coming with a project called Honeycomb, which is that adapter layer where you'd actually write. Um, if we're not supporting one protocol, you'd write your favorite protocol. Let's say it's just flinging it over UDP, or you know it, it wants to go over HTTPS or whatever. Write an HPS module, and Honeycomb will pound it into VPP and mm-hmm. and Fido itself. And all you have to write is that um, protocol adapter, and that's it. And the control mm-hmm. plane, pick your favorite.
0: What about the P4 programming language? Does that something like I find that quite interesting? Is that something that could be supported?
1: So that can be supported, and there's a P4 summit coming up, and that's exactly what some folks on my team are going to be working with um, the P4 community on trying to do. Mm-hmm. Not only to extend the use of VPP, but also, in particular, to make sure that the compiler model—I'll call it that—the compiler model and language mm-hmm. constructs of P4 are suitable for full routing forwarding planes, and uh, yeah. and that it works well.
0: A lot of vendors have criticised OpenFlow as being impractical to implement, and so I guess you would rather not see a repeat of that of you know OpenFlow defining things that can't be actually executed, like or implemented in silicon or software.
1: Exactly right, and mm. as we've talked in the past, have zero religion over the SDN protocol at this point.
0: Mm. Well, and P four is actually taking zero religion over your networking protocol. It can be. You can start writing your own tags. You can start writing your own IP protocol for all that if you
1: feel like it. Exactly right.
0: Let's just take a deviation here and talk about standards bodies because I know it's one of your favorite topics. And P4 and this whole idea of fungible forwarding planes takes away the requirement for standards bodies. That is... In the past, we've talked to you know relied on the IEEE or the IETF to come up with standards related to things like spanning tree and Ethernet or BGP and ISIS and OSPF for for IP routing protocols, and we needed that consensus because we needed to have interoperability and also. Vendors needed to have a known state to manufacture their products against and have a market. So, once the IETF standard emerged, then vendors could make products that used those standards knowing that there was a viable market. But we're now heading into an era where we can program anything we like. So, for example, this week we saw Facebook announce its Open R project where they've built a complete Messaging plane on their routers using open source standard open source projects like ZeroMQ and Apache Spark to replace routing protocols almost completely. It's early days; they aren't quite there yet, but it's certainly their intention to move this in live. You know, do standards bodies have a future here? Is this a, like does FDIO or does does it move past that era of waiting for standards bodies to lead and let them to start to catch up to what's actually happening in the real world?
1: So a couple of things. One, even even that uh, OpenR project, the way that it used the ZeroMQ and the message buses, it still had protocol support to form those adjacencies, but remember a standards body had not defined how to do either interprocess communication, remote procedure call, FIB downloads, or any of those pieces. They chose ZeroMQ.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, so that's where the bus was used on the internals of the router, not necessarily on the externals of the router. They still discuss support of Of open standard protocols. But to your point on how VPP, I think, is related to standards protocols or standards bodies in particular, because a graph node is an independent feature node, if somebody at a standards body wants to build some new feature, widget, or feature, sorry, or protocol. They now have a prototyping platform that is as easy as it can get, meaning that they only need to define and write the code associated with their feature. And I truly hope that it enables standards bodies to get back to the point of running code in rough consensus, you know, versus fine lunches and dinners and political trickery, Um mm. That my tongue was in my cheek, but nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> well, but
0: nonetheless- it's not so much. It's the organisations have have um, were built in a certain era, and they built on a model of scientific consensus, and you know, and, and I mean, the ITF is sort of a victim of its own success in a way that anybody who wants to start a project can start a project, provided they conform to the rules, and you have crazy ideas getting up off the ground because enough people are willing to follow crazy ideas. Like the one Ethan brought up today is deterministic networking. That's fundamentally trying to emulate going back 40 years in networking to do TDM circuits over IP. It's absolutely nuts. There doesn't seem to be any common sense in the the ITF particularly around this is a dumb idea. We shouldn't do this sort of thing.
1: Probably like you, I refuse yep. to burn my career on stopping all dumb ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, and instead, try and focus on the good ideas. But in this particular case, if somebody wanted to build or attempted to prove that deterministic networking could be built, they actually have a platform that they can go and prove that out in code, versus uh, just speculating on a hypothesis. And I, and again, we've we've taken as you know, we've taken both ODL and we've recently taken VPP to the standards bodies hackathons that we both sponsored and participated in to begin to teach folks and create these dev boot programs to get folks up the hill as fast as possible and being able to write feature nodes in the graph, as Dave mentioned earlier, to be able to prove out the point that they want to make and the feature and functionality that they want to do.
0: Now, well, That what is- that, that, uh, that hits one of my cynical buttons is, you know money can buy you a long way in open source and sponsoring hackathons to get people to understand your open source project is a way of driving it forward politically i just wanted to highlight that in the interests of fairness you know cisco's throwing a lot of money at fddi at fido and the fddi project by sponsoring these hackathons most linux foundation projects wouldn't even remotely have a chance of doing that
1: maybe i mean that that's that's actually a fairly harsh criticism right now. Um, just between April 18th and May 18th, there's uh, 248 commits to FIDO with forty-one different contributors and twelve of them are new in that month. And for example, DBDK's got in that month 26 contributors with three new. Mm-hmm. And Open V Switch has 30 contributors with seven new. Anyways, my point is that what Dave mentioned earlier, it is taking off in the open source community and I don't believe because uh, you have to remember the the FIDO community and the VPP community inside Cisco is incredibly small. And although it may be Mm. more money than than other folks can afford, it's actually really quite small. Mm. And back to Ethan's point earlier, the point here isn't necessarily to 800-pound gorilla this because we're not selling it. Mm. It's actually just to move the industry forward because we are wrapped around yeah. the axle in delaying NFV and delaying container networking and delaying OpenStack networking yeah. uh, and, and the I.O. requirements of that and feature requirements. And that's really what we're trying to do.
0: Marcek, what are you sort of doing to test this performance and validate? Like there's some pretty astonishing claims on the website about just how fast FDDIO can go. What's the deal there?
2: Well, so um, as I said, I, I fell in love with VVP when I bumped into Bar- Dave Barak a few years back, mm. and um, it was the um, the. Uh, of I haven't touched the C code for uh, twenty years. It was the attention to detail, uh, the passion and enthusiasm that actually the code is showing in the code. Mm. It's simplicity, modularity, and efficiency. And um, when I say efficiency, uh, you know, we we keep talking about those um, cycles per packet and number of users per per compute footprint of compute. The beauty with VPP is that it is all uh, trackable. You can see it. Um, there are counters for, uh, for everything, and, uh, and there are also counters for you know how many clock cycles are spent on processing packets or vector of packets, and then it's averaged on the per-packet basis. So one can very quickly um, calculate and, and see from uh, uh, APIs or, or even CLI on how efficient and fast... Um, not only the whole VPP is, but specific uh, nodes that are processing packets. And, um, and I think somebody, I think it was uh, you, uh, Dave, the big Dave, Dave Ward, uh, you, 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 you made this uh, line uh, that um, the bin counters, the accountants would absolutely love it because suddenly um, people can understand by looking on how uh, VPP is processing those packets on what is the cost of uh, not only... Uh, the full service, but specific features that are involved to uh, that compose this service. So whether it's a whether it's a IPv4 forwarding, IPv6, whether it's security, whether it's firewall, all of that is actually visible through the um, very extensive and granular telemetry in PPP in terms of uh, the cost, the cost in the clock cycles. And then we take clock cycles we we know how fast the computers are uh, in terms of you know billions of cycles per second gigahertz uh, how many cores and uh, that way we can calculate very quickly uh, on paper and then verify in the lab on uh, how many you know uh, packets features services customers can be supported on the, on the, on the footprint of compute so this is really the uh, the approach we are taking to um, benchmarking rbp uh, and different scenarios um, we've been doing it at Cisco for a while, and now we're doing it in the open, which is, mm. um, which is great. We did set up a, a project within the FDIO, uh, which, uh, which I'm uh, leading from a technical perspective. It's, uh, somebody came up with this weird name called CISIT Continuous System Integration Testing. Um, it's basically a, a continuous development and continuous integration uh, approach uh, to the network processing uh, software, i.e. VPP, and um, we basically uh, we are still in the development phase. We are alive for about uh, two two months, uh, two and a half months. Mm. And what we're doing, we we basically build a um, what I call a continuous design engineering benchmarking and feedback platform, where we give the developers uh, a tool where they can co- test their code and um, and show whether firstly the code is working. That's the functional tests insisted. And and then how well it is working, and this is the performance part of the platform. Um, it's also, I think, on official uh, literature, it's uh, referred to as a continuous performance lab. Mm. The project is Sysit, and we basically uh, test uh, test performance. That's really what we're doing in, uh, in FDIO. Um,
0: right. So you're doing all the testing on Cisco. The results I'm looking at here on the Cisco blog and what you're doing is all on yep. Cisco hardware? Um, obviously, because you've got it. Does the Cisco hardware, like, especially in the UCS servers, there's a lot of acceleration in the NIC, a lot of optimized NIC performance. Are you compensating for that in some way?
2: Well, funnily enough, we're actually not using Cisco NICs at the moment. Um, we are using uh, Intel NICs because they are uh, working and they are for what we're doing, um, they, uh, they are cleaner from the perspective of uh, DPDK drivers. So right, yeah. uh, we are using DPDK drivers for, uh, for the NICs. Uh, this decision was made uh, quite a while back as uh, writing driver uh, drivers. Uh, well, we don't, we don't have many people who are enthused about uh, writing drivers. So we're relying on DPDK. <laughs> and... Um, yeah. and uh, and that works uh, so we um, what we have uh, uh, managed to uh, get donations in the uh, linux foundation we have indeed uh, ucs servers with uh, intel uh, intel nics so intel donated the uh, excel 710 40 gig nics and, uh, and also 10 gig nics and that's what we uh, that's what we're using there and in fact majority of the tests that we're doing right now are based on cisco ucs with uh, intel chips and uh, and Intel Nix. Now okay. we're doing UCSs, but uh, we're also working with um, uh, Intel, uh, who are doing exactly the same test, pretty much mirror tests on their Supermicro platforms, and um, and we're getting very similar results. So, okay, hopefully, I just wanted to
0: we'll ask that question to... because you know if you're testing exclusively on UCS, the UCS server does have a lot of performance optimizations or uses different approaches compared to other people's. And I just wanted to flag that up. That was all. I'm not.
2: Just well, kind of uh, yeah. in fact, I'm not aware of using. Uh, we, we're not using any acceleration within the UCS itself on the right. mix. Right. We really rely on Intel Intel architecture. Right. And going forward, we're actually looking for people to donate more hardware, uh, super micro or other, into LF, uh, as our um, s- uh, testing system. The system uh, can work on any um, x86 uh, 64 architecture. In fact, VPP supports now other uh, micro architectures. So we're looking to actually uh, for people to donate some uh, Atom and uh, and ARM uh, servers to to basically run the same tests. Okay.
1: Now the point the point of actually us open sourcing Machek in this case and all his his entire test rig and the results and and all of it in the continuous performance lab was that we could it's the only open source project that actually uh, you have to run not only functional tests but performance tests so that when we have a release of Fido the performance and scaling of all the features are known at time of release. And although that sounds perhaps obvious, why isn't everybody doing that? It actually right now is the, the first networking-related open source community that has a performance lab like this that can reject features and check-ins from from being included in mainline if they're not up to snuff.
2: Yep, yeah. and uh, maybe just a quick note on um, the earlier comment um, uh, made here about uh, why we need new computers. So... Today, on the current generation of uh, Xeons, uh, we can drive uh, 2 times 20 gigabytes per socket from the PCIe Gen 3 perspective. So that's 2 times 106 gig, and that's pretty much it. So uh, two sockets, we can, uh, we can get 320 gigs, uh, theoretically, um, uh, out of the based on the PCIe, PCIe, PCIe bandwidth, and that's exactly what we're driving with VPP, uh, having as many free cores to do other useful work as possible, and out of the four sockets, uh, well, that will bring us to the, um, uh, what was it, 160, 320, so uh, 640 gigs. And uh, that's, uh, that's what we're trying to achieve. And you can see some of the numbers already quoted in the, in the block. And we're trying to push it, uh, push it further. The main restrictions are really I.O., and that's uh, PCIe lanes, chain 3 and also the uh, NICs. So we're looking for faster NICs, too, if you have them.
1: Poor Maciek, you were quite pent up there.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: we did get there in the end though which is good <laughs> so guys we have we have hit VPP hard. We went into some corners that i didn 't know we were going to go into, and this is pretty cool. Um, is there anything else that uh, that we should hit what's maybe what 's upcoming or uh, or what's what 's baked in there that uh, we haven 't talked about yet?
1: Hey, well uh, you know one you can see the list the superset of, of uh, features that are listed on the blog, but there's some stuff that's come out since we uh, put out that blog that I think people may be interested in, which includes per interface white lists, jumbo frame support, Shared adjacencies, which is basically a recursive FIB or recursive route re- resolution or indirect next tops, however you like to say that. Netmap interface support, Python bindings, new Java bindings, um, LISP XTR, V6 segment routing. Uh, that was for you, Faro. Uh, VX, <laughs> VXLAN over V6, GRE, GRE over V6, um
3: so th- these are all things that this data plane can do and hooks into it so you can program it that haven't even been documented yet, we're saying? Or?
1: That, re- that aren't on the blog and are, you know, freshly out of the gate over the last two months. And, and actually, many of these came in from the open source community, which is what I wanted to hit on. And the last one uh, for you, Ethan, is that VPP has been ported to Raspberry Pi. And oh. so, and, and because
0: you need terabits in a Raspberry Pi.
1: Well, what's interesting is that Raspberry Pi right now you're going to see multiple hundred megabit, which is pretty fucking rocking for a Raspberry Pi. It surely <laughs> is. Yeah, okay,
4: um, I think I think the number turns out to be around three hundred megabits um, from uh, from from what the guy in the open source community who did the work, uh, Christoph, uh, turned out to get, and that's pretty much a number fresh out of the box. Which generation um, Pi was that? Do you remember? Uh, the latest. The, th- the three, okay.
0: Yeah, the three. It wasn't going to be a first generation one. <laughs> wow, I would have been really shocked if it
3: was, but wow, yeah.
0: But I mean, even at 100 megabits per second, you're talking about a, a Raspberry Pi WAN edge that That's right. just five years ago, you know, we were buying, uh, you know, routers for you know thousands of dollars that now we can replace with a five dollar Raspberry Pi and some software. Theoretically,
1: I mean, you were close. You're heading in that direction, you know. Absolutely not, Greg. You cannot do that. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Now, my cynical button
0: just got pressed in.
1: (laughs) All the way in. Hey, well, what I wanted uh, to—the way I wanted to just—just quick end this is let you know that uh, next big major release of VPPs coming out in—in Dave. What's the date? Is it June? Or is that the code cutoff?
4: Okay, June June is the, the first formal release, and then there'll be one three months uh, after that. We're trying to spin in phase space uh, a couple of months after the PDK on pretty much a three-month cadence if we can do it.
1: And um, I think, you know, the release in June is going to have all the features I mentioned, the stuff you read on the web. The one in September will have uh, much richer honeycomb support, which was that uh, shim on top that speaks all the SDN protocols. And um, there's a fast data packets project going on in OPNFV, where OPNFV is going to be built out of Neutron, ODL, VPP, DPDK, etc. and that's all going to be brought together And for that release. So the September release is... After many, many years of work in open source and in building a whole bunch of uh, foundations, contributing a bunch of code, I think is finally to the point where we're going to see it come together and be integrated into a into a solution uh, across those across those open source communities. Hmm. Which those are uh, big
3: words, right there. Actually, hmm. hmm. be just <laughs> well, to see what September brings us.
1: Uh, I agree. Um, but uh, I've canceled the summer and all summer vacations for my crew. And uh, we're going to at least go for it, which is good news. Mm. Sorry, Dave. Sorry, Machek.
0: thank you dave thank you much thank you dave thank
1: you hey well thanks guys i appreciate the time today
0: thanks for listening to packet pushes today i think we've taken fd.io just about as far as it's going to go this whole idea of vector packet processing and overhauling the virtual switch to something that's a little bit different we talked about a number of different things i've tried to collect as many links as possible that will go out in the blog post that goes with this um there's some good documentation over at the fd.io website they've done a great job of sort of explaining the basic ideas behind vector packet processing and how some of the th- graph theory works there. You can demonstrate how amazing you are to us by telling your boss what you learned today. Thanks very much to Dave Ward. Uh, Dave, where can people find you on the internet?
1: They can find me at a, at a Twitter handle that I only stalk at, at, uh, at drrcranium. Uh, you can mm-hmm. see me on Facebook and send me email, all the usual places, and uh, I respond.
0: And Dave,
4: Barrick, can people find you on the internet or do you lurk? Yes, they can. Well, I'm somewhat of a lurker, but at VPP guy, uh, on Twitter is a good place to look for me. Fantastic.
0: And Maciek, where can people find you on the internet?
2: Uh, well, I am uh, a very uh, anti-social, so uh, no Twitter, and um, but uh, uh, Google and uh, email uh, works, uh, maciek at Cisco.com and also Fido Sisset.
3: Ethan, any parting thoughts? The performance that we're starting to get here is uh, is extraordinary. And what will be interesting to me is because there's so many competing interests here. And not just interests, but projects and personalities and some egos. How, how will the community actually react to VPP you know, on the whole? And that will be very interesting to watch, especially with what Dave said at the end about what uh, what they're marching towards for September with some multi-project integrations that present a holistic packaging for NFV. At etc.
0: Uh, for me, what I'm striking here is the similarity between this as a forwarding plane that's agnostic of the actual forwarding process in the same way that Merchant Silicon is agnostic in white box and vendor switches. You can choose it. That doesn't, the forwarding plane itself has no... Value. Yet for the last 20 or 30 years in networking, being able to build a forwarding plane was a key competitive advantage. We're now seeing that it's not the forwarding plane that's a value, it's the control plane and the management plane. That is the protocols you use to program the forwarding plane that matter. And now we have a white box virtual switch and now we have white box physical switches. It should be interesting to see how that plays out there's a wider issue there that I'm sort of seeing. So you can find this and many more free technical podcasts for engineers along with our community bloggers at packetpushes.net. Follow us on Twitter as at Packer Pushes, Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, and really, please, if you've got a chance, please head over um, to your favorite place and say to people, this is a fantastic podcast to listen to because goodness knows we spent 90 minutes going incredibly nerdy on something today. Uh, And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.